Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 493. If you're going to complain about something, really think hard about coming to the table with a solution for that complaint and make all of your ideas doable. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. I'll never worry again about having a dead battery with my NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in my glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that'll jumpstart a dead battery in my car, boat, truck, or RV. The Genius Boost features built-in spark-proof technology and reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart any of my vehicles. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are built from solid copper for maximum conductivity. There's a built-in ultrabite dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS and emergency strobe. I use my Genius Boost jump starter to charge my phone, tablet, and laptop while I'm on the road or if the power goes out in my home. The unit itself is easily rechargeable in my vehicle. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, the battery car source since 1914. I've got one in each of my vehicles. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Diane Fitzgerald. Diane, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Yes, I am. All right. It's so good to have you here. Diane Fitzgerald is the National Director of the Haggerty Education Program at LeMay, America's Car Museum. She's continuing the work of the Haggerty Fund and Collectors Foundation to promote America's automotive heritage and the interests of the collector community. Prior to her role at the Haggerty, Diane was the museum's National Club Auto Director, helping to reach beyond their campus there in Tacoma, Washington. She's an avid microcar and motorcycle enthusiast who's traveled all over the world on four wheels and two to many, many very exotic destinations, including places like Bhutan and India. Diane and her husband, Bert Richmond, are, were on the board at the museum, but they are major donors to this day at LeMay. So, Diane, I've told our listeners just a tiny bit about you. Would you take a brief moment and share a little bit more about your career and, of course, your passion for automobiles and motorcycles? Well, I'm the luckiest person in the world to be the National Director of the Haggerty Education Program at America's Car Museum. It's certainly a highlight of my career, and it's uh, very special that I'm able to take the passion of being a car enthusiast and motorcycle enthusiast and turn it into a career. And I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that during the course of this interview. I am the oldest of four girls, and we all went to college, and none of us were car guys back in the day. But I had a boyfriend, and he was a car guy, and I'm married to a car guy, and that kind of changed everything. <laughs> I think so. Well, you are a car gal. I know that for sure. And we had a delightful pre-show chat here, Diane and I, and I learned a lot more about some of the incredible adventures. I hope she's going to share some of that along with what she's doing to help promote the museum and the automotive hobby. But first, as we continue on your journey, I always like to start with a success quote. This is some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success, and it's a really nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So, Diane, take the wheel. 
Well, thank you very much, Mark. I actually don't have a quote, but I've got a way of thinking, a philosophy, if you will, that I learned from my seventh grade history teacher, Mr. Heaney. Cool, Mr. Heaney. Thank you. (laughs) Mr. Heaney. I've had a chance actually as an adult to thank him all those years later when we were having uh, junior high and high school reunions, which is kind of fun. Very fun. And so there are two things that are going on here that piggyback one against the other. He would say that if you're going to complain about something, make sure you have an idea about the solution for what you're complaining about. His second part of that was because he, I think he observed as a seventh grade teacher that people had lots of ideas but didn't do anything with them, his students. So the second part of that philosophy was before you share any of your ideas, make sure that the idea you're sharing is doable or is implementable in some way. And I have actually used both of those, part A and part B, throughout my career. And it has, um, especially as a woman going into business, it has been especially helpful to live my life that way. If I've got a complaint, come to the table with a solution and make sure my ideas are implementable to be able to cut to the chase and not have fluff ideas around all the time. So thank you, Mr. Heaney. Yes, Mr. Heaney, thank you very much. (laughs) You know, this is really important because I ran a company for many, many years, decades, and I would have employees come to me with challenges and they would explain what their challenge is. And I usually say, well, what do you want me to do about that? And they rarely had an answer. They just wanted it fixed somehow magically. Yes, if you have a challenge, figure out how it should be resolved and go to your boss, your spouse, your friends, whoever it is you're dealing with and have a solution to kind of help out with that problem. So Mr. Sweeney had a great, great message for you that (laughs) you think back to, boy, seventh grade all those years ago, and you're still sharing that with them. So having those great teachers, we're so lucky when we have good teachers in our lives. I think you're right. One of the things that came out of listening to and living that philosophy was observing. So you're not so quick to complain, as an example. You look around and say, okay, well, you know, what is it really? So the observing piece to that uh, gets a little bit fine-tuned, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Great first question, Mark, I have to say. Well, we're off to a good start then on this uh, journey we're sharing together today. Now, would you share a story with us that instigated your passion for cars? You talked about growing up with sisters and not really being a car gal back then, but you kind of, well, you have become one. But is there a pivotal moment in your life when you look back when you really realize, oh my gosh, I am a car gal? Well, I'm going to tell you the genesis of car gal awareness and then when I became a car gal. Cool. So my first serious boyfriend uh, in high school when I was a junior was a car guy. He bought what I think was a 19, this would be in the late 1960s. He bought an early Nova, tan Nova convertible that was in bad shape that he restored. And at the same time, then somewhere during our relationship, probably three or four years later, he bought a 1971 Mustang Mach 1. Cool. Yeah. We ended up doing road trips in both of those cars, one of them 2,000 2000 miles from Long Island to Chicago and back. It was so much fun. And you had a totally different experience in the Nova versus the Mach 1 
relative to the world around you and people stopping and talking at a car rest or a restaurant and that whole engagement it was very clear to me that people talked because of the cars and it was a great icebreaker and an engaging way to relate to people my own car guyness happened probably at about the same time a year later i bought a 19 so this would be 1971 i bought a 1964 Volkswagen Beetle that was a piece of junk but I bought it because I was too afraid to drive the stick shift of the Mach 1 and wanted to learn how to drive a stick shift and this $600 rotting rust rot you know <laughs> car was the perfect classroom if you will for learning how to drive stick shift and it was really soft and you know I could repair the car myself if I needed to right and no one of my female peers at the time cared about stick shift no one cared. Everyone was into the automatic. You know, we were fed the, the automatic convenience from the 1950s and 60s, and we were certainly that next generation. But I thought that it was urgently important for me to learn how to drive a stick shift, and it paid off in spades throughout my life, particularly when I became a motorcyclist. But also, you know, we, we've got a garage in Milan, and all of the cars, including our chase vehicles, are stick shifts. And we've had some moments when, you know, women uh, in the trip, on the trip, had to get off of their motorcycles and drive the van. And I was the only one among us who could do that. So it's got <laughs> practical application, too. So I pinpoint 1971 as my car guy gal year. Yeah, well, it sounds like it. And it sounds like you got to to be uh, tested and uh, try some really interesting cars. Both my kids were taught how to drive stick shifts in uh, my 1972 911S Porsche. So I figured might as well start them off with something kind of fun and unique. <laughs> and uh, and to this day, they're, most of their friends don't know how to drive stick shifts. So uh, I always say it's a good way to keep a car from being stolen. Just have a stick shift because most yeah. Most people can't drive them, so they're going to bump your car and go to the next one. Oh, that's hysterical, yeah. Diane, I would love to take a look at some of the roads you've driven down, and you've driven down some amazing roads, and crawl under the hood here and talk about a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced along the way in your career. But as many of my guests do share, the most important part of this part of our talk is how did you overcome that situation and what did it teach you? Well, my great challenge and entrepreneurial aha moments were almost the same thing. And it had to do with a turning point, a milestone turning point in my life that was a personal turning point that impacted my life and career. And that was my first marriage ending in divorce, which was not my idea. It was his idea. And the year or year plus spent trying to sort out the, the whole emotional process and then the logistical of actually getting divorced and then redefining. In my case, I decided it was a perfect moment in time to redefine myself, but also real trying to, I, trying to realize who I was as a result of all this, because I felt, you know, betrayal, shock, awe, betrayal, all of those things. So, right. so that was a moment in time that two things happened. I decided that, and that year was probably about 1980, was it 84, 85, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I decided that, and at the time I was an art teacher and an artist exhibiting art in galleries around the United States, but an art teacher in Chicago, which is where my husband and I um, live. And I was lucky enough to teach at one of the best schools ever for art as part of the curriculum because it was woven throughout the whole curriculum. Mm. So this divorce made me start thinking about economics, 
salary equity. Uh, you know, I was leaving a marriage where he was a banker and I was a teacher and there was great gap between my earnings and earning potential and his earnings and earning potential. Right. And I decided then that I was going to get a, uh, an MBA, a master's of business administration. And living in Chicago, we've got some really great schools like the University of Chicago and Northwestern University. Oh yeah, I hadn't had math since senior year in high school. And at that point in 84, 85, I was 30 something. So I became a student of math by being tutored for a couple of years before I took the GMETs, which are the standardized tests that you take to apply to a school, got into both University of Chicago and Northwestern and went to University of Chicago part-time while I was working full-time. And at that time, I was the head of a not-for-profit visual arts organization called Marwin in Chicago, which I was the founding executive director of. And I got my MBA, and it was my uh, way to transition from the classroom, the, the studio, the art studio and classroom, into business by uh, being the founding executive director of Marwin. And then from there, I went right to Fruit of the Loom and Corporate America, which totally changed my life from the artist where I work with a blank piece of paper with watercolors and mask making were my media and translated that into what ended up being a strong background in marketing and communications, that blank piece of paper, project oriented, you know, beginning, middle and an end. And while working in corporate America, having fundraising commitments to organizations on the side. So that adversity in 1980, whatever it was, shaped forever. I mean, if it didn't happen, I would have had, I wouldn't be on this show with you today, I'm quite sure, if that divorce didn't happen. Mm -hmm. It changed forever the direction of my life and the possibility of building an empire and realizing my complete potential, which is what I feel as though I'm lucky enough to have enjoyed all these years. 30 years later. Yeah, well, wow. First and foremost, thanks for sharing a wonderful story, a very personal story with us today. And uh, I think it's tremendous because these, as we call it today, pivots in our lives that we come upon these obstacles. And I've had so many great guests on the show who've shared some incredible challenges they face when it comes to divorce or physical injury. I interviewed a man yesterday who was blinded in a drag racing accident. Oh. And now he is setting uh, land speed records on Bonneville, yes, as a blind driver, wow. so a motorcycle rider too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, incredible. So I really appreciate that. And I think it's important for our listeners to know, and that's why I asked the question, when you face adversity, there's always a way out of it. There is a way to move forward. And I, I, kudos to you, you go girl, for uh, <laughs> for uh, deciding that you were going to take those steps to change the focus of your life and uh you took all that great artist background with you as you moved forward and uh, look at what you're doing today. So uh, tremendous story. Absolutely fantastic. And Thank I love you. the way you tied that aha into that adversity as well. Very cool. All right. I assume, Diane, you've had many proud moments in your life, but I would love for you to share one in particular with our listeners that really stands out for you. Well, I would have to say my proudest business moment is happening right now. I cannot imagine a more significant, meaningful, personally meaningful, and culturally meaningful role to be in than leading the Haggerty Education Program at America's Car Museum. And it is the most special thing I think I've ever been involved in. 
And this is that moment, the proudest moment. Why am I proud? I'm proud because of the far-reachingness of what the Haggard Education Program does. Last year, in 2015, to give you a couple of quick examples, I traveled 57,000 miles across the United States (laughs) and southern Canada. Oh, my gosh. To find car guide teachers, to find administrators at the high school and college level who uh, bought into automotive restoration technology curriculum in the past 10 or 15 years because they were visionaries in seeing that the modern auto tech programs were good, but that there was a growing business in automotive restoration. I'm looking for the car guide teachers who go above and beyond the call of duty, the shops that are looking for talent and are looking for talent either today or tomorrow because the baby boomers are retiring. I'm looking for the shops with the very specialized craftsmen to be able to um, make sure that those skills are not lost. The schools, the car clubs, who, you know, the collections, the car clubs, the engaged community, the industry, auction houses, everything to understand the automotive restoration industry, what I'm calling the classic car industry, Mm -hmm. and also finding those kids after all of my research and 57,000 miles, those kids who, and they are out there aplenty, who are in the 17 to 25 year old age range who are passionate about classic cars and vintage cars and hot rods and vintage racing and exotics and performance cars. They are out there and they just don't know that there is a pathway to career in automotive restoration. And I and my team of, we've got two employees working on the Haggerty Education Program. And we also have 11 ambassadors around the United States that help be boots on the ground doing the same kind of uh, research and the re- the relationships that we've cultivated. We raise money to give it away and we fund people and programs around the United States and Canada. But we're also trying to stimulate the national conversation about automotive restoration education and making the reality of this industry and these career paths known to people. So one of the things that I'm very excited about right now is on May 4th, which is right after this show will air, Haggerty Education Program is hosting in Mesa, Arizona, a regional summit meeting because the superintendent of one of their county schools that's fed by 10 high schools came to me recently and said, you know, I think we're interested in exploring the idea of adding to our very award-winning auto tech program, automotive restoration. And why don't we get a conversation going about that? And I said, great, let's start talking about it, but let's bring in shops, other schools, other administrators, students, parents, car clubs, car event organizers, because the Arizona Concours is um, quite meaningfully growing up in that area, in that neck of the woods right now, too. Oh, yeah. Local industry and um, national industry. And so sure enough, we're having between 30 and 50. We're still in the RSVPing stage right now, but I'm predicting 30 to 50 people, many of whom are out of towners. We've got the three 
well, most well-known schools at the college level of automotive restoration curriculum who are attending, SEMA's attending. We've got some of our ambassadors. We've got the Haggerty Education Program's first apprentice who was in uh, Pennsylvania and now working in Texas and his shop manager coming from Texas to talk about it. So we've got this very exciting opportunity to um, uh, explore automotive restoration, the need for talent, and educating the talent. And I know there are going to be curricular gaps, and it'll be a very interesting, dynamic conversation. And I'll bet a quarter that we'll take the show on the road and have regional summit meetings in other parts of the country as well, exploring the same topic. Wow. Well, you know, it's absolutely tremendous because there's a big part of Cars Yeah here that I try to promote, and that's entrepreneurship and jobs. And we have so many young people that are going to college with no idea what they want to do, getting liberal arts degrees and coming out kind of going, what What do I do for a living? And the fact that there are so many great job opportunities for people, young people with a passion for automotive restoration, for working on cars in any capacity, that's why I really wanted to have you on because what you guys are doing is absolutely fantastic. Awesome, awesome answer to that question. Now let's have a little bit of fun here. And I know in our pre-show chat we talked about this a little bit, so I'm curious to hear how you answer this. What was your first really special car? And I'll include the word motorcycle in that case because I know you're a bike rider. And then if you could share a special memory you have of that vehicle. Well, I'm actually going to answer that by telling you about two vehicles. Cool. So I'm expanding the, <laughs> uh, the question a little bit. That's okay. I've already told you about my 1964 Volkswagen Beetle, which was my uh, test drive for uh, stick shifting. Yep. I also have very fond relationships, if you will, with a car that we've owned for about 15, 20 years now, and a car that we bought as a companion to that car. Uh, we bought that in the last two or three years. The first is a 1963 Fiat 500. We found it in Italy, if I remember correctly, and it had a custom paint job to look like a Ferrari, <laughs> which which was kind of nervy of the owner, we thought, but we thought it was adorable. It's the uh, the beautiful burgundy and silver with yellow wheels uh, wow. as a nod to the Ferrari logo. We shipped it over here to the United States uh, soon after we bought it. But a couple of years ago, when the Fiat 500s, the modern ones came out, we decided to buy a black one, which we did. We bought it in 2013. So it was 50 years older or younger, I guess, uh, 1963 to the th 2013. And we painted it identically to the 1963. So we now have two identically painted. Um, uh, it looks kind of mother-daughter or father-son. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, the new body is so differently shaped that they look more like cousins than they do, you know, yeah. direct, uh, immediate family. But we drive those around uh, of a, uh, a Saturday in Chicago doing our errands, caravan style. We take them to car shows. We are very engaged as club members ourselves and participate locally and nationally in various car events. And my fantasy, actually, and we're going to do that this year, my fantasy was to get a trailer for the 2013 Fiat 500 and trailer the 1963. And we're working <laughs> on finding a mini trailer to be able to do that. So that's my favorite car. You know, it's more recent than the first, 
I'll give you another story about uh, 1997 Ducati Monster, which was the first year that Monsters came out, which is Ducati's, quote, naked motorcycle. Bert surprised me with one as a non-Christmas gift that year. And I owned a loft at the time and we were not living together yet. And I came home from work that day and there was a bright yellow Ducati Monster in my living room of my loft with hundreds of Walgreens sticky bows that look like pimples Mm -hmm. all over the place. Hundreds (laughs) of them everywhere. It was meaningful not only because it was a profound gift. I'd never been gifted like that before. But it was meaningful because I, not knowing how to repay someone for that kind of generosity, I said to Bert that I would become the best motorcyclist I could possibly become. And I was 43 years old then. And uh, I became a pretty good motorcyclist. So there's a special place in my heart for that as a vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we share something because I had a bright yellow 2004 Ducati Monster. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it was the first bike that I got. I rode bikes back in high school, a lot of dirt bikes, off-road stuff, but I hadn't ridden for years and decided to get back into it. So, uh, yeah, I bought that bike and then along with it, a a MV Augusta F4. So I went all Italian. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, yeah, I have a special affection for those Ducati Monsters. They're really great bikes. Now, how about a vehicle that you've owned, that you've let go, that you really wish you could have back? Is there one that's just kind of tugs at your heartstrings? You know, there's not. I have a big fat nun, N-O-N-E. You're, you're fortunate. <laughs> yeah, I, I know I'm fortunate. And that's kind of when we go to these car shows and people talk that way, I, I'm silent. I don't have anything to add <laughs> to that part of the conversation. But I have never longed for a car and I'm not sure why. Maybe do I need to go into therapy to explore that a little no, bit? No, I think you're just really fortunate because, you know, you're a forward, progressive thinking woman. So you're always looking what's next. You don't look behind you in the mirror. It doesn't matter. It's what's down the road, right? So <laughs> I just analyzed you. You're fixed. There you go. Well done. Yeah, well done. Well done, Mark. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Dr. Mark is in today. <laughs> There's an idea for a show. I could have a show called Dr. Mark where we talk about car problems. Yeah, right. I, I think I just came up with a, a new podcast there. Now, how about current projects? We talked a little bit about what you're doing today with the foundation and everything is so exciting, but are there some things coming up this year that really have you excited and fired up? Well, the summit meeting that I just told you about uh, is very, very exciting to me. I didn't mention that one aspect of people attending are media and the attention of media coming, and everyone I send an invitation to says, oh, I want to be there. Yeah. So maybe it'll be more than 30 to 50 people attending, but I'm, I'm thrilled at the prospects for the area to have a great feeder school for the 17 to 27, depending on how you're counting, automotive restoration shops in the area, and the opportunities this is going to open up for kids in an organized way. And the sample, or the example, rather, that it becomes for other parts of the United States. And the the bigger impact is just the national conversation, general awareness of the renaissance and return to hands-on education, which has been sorely missing from our culture, I think, since the 1970s and 80s. Yep. And a lot of people are regretting that in positions of influence where we can restore that, certainly in automotive hotspots around the United States, but maybe throughout the United States in general. I'm also pretty excited about the meeting of the kids, the next generation of talent 
talented craftspeople and meeting the shop owners who have the need for the talent. I'm not quite in between them yet. I imagine at some point in time we might be, but, but being that talent connection and having all these parties at the table, having a conversation about the workforce and, you know, and, and we're looking 20 years out. This is not just what's going to be happening in the next two or three years. So it's a, it's pretty profound and I'm proud of it and pleased and honored to be in a leadership role relative to, to this educational movement. No, it's absolutely tremendous. And I've had a fair number of builders and designers on the show here at Cars. Yeah. And I'll ask you this. If there are some listeners out there that want to get involved in any capacity from donating to becoming involved in some way, what's the best way for them to reach out and be able to let you know, hey, I'm putting my hand up. I'd like to help with this. Well, thank you so much for asking because we do need help. We've got a very aggressive goal for fundraising this year of uh, trying to get to a million dollars so that we can um, have this far-reaching effect of not only bringing communities together, but also funding programs and scholarships and internships and apprenticeships. But the way, the best way to get in touch with uh, the Haggerty Education Program is through me. I'll give you my email and cell phone number and our website, of course. My email address is diane at hepacm.org. And Diane is one end. So D-I-A-N-E at H-E-P-A-C-M dot org. My cell phone, remember I live in Chicago. It's a Chicago cell phone at 312-543-5732. And texting works uh, just as well as talking. And the website is HaggertyEducationProgram.org. So www.haggertyeducationprogram.org. And we would love for people to um, get engaged with us, both from a funding standpoint, sponsorship standpoint, but also if you know a shop or you know a kid. I'm taking a group of, oh, this is, actually I'll add this to the what special project are you working on. I'm taking seven um, potential future students who are all, I think, in the 16 to 18-year-old age range and their parents on if from all over the country these are people just like this opportunity if if a kid called me up after this particular show after hearing this show i would talk to that person well this is how i collected seven seven of these people and their parents and we're flying into or driving to pennsylvania college of technology in williamsport pennsylvania for site visit and to volunteer and participate in their first car show, which is on April 16th. And th- none of these kids knew about Pennsylvania College of Technology's two-year two degree, two degree program in automotive restoration technology, but they'll meet the, their future classmates, they'll have financial aid interviews, they'll have admission conversations, they'll see the dormitories, and then we're all going to um, volunteer or participate in the car show. So we're doing that with a couple of schools, uh, Central Carolina College, um, and also we're exploring relationships with the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. So it's pretty pretty darn exciting and yeah, yes my absolutely. is definitely fast <laughs> very very cool well, and i'll remind our listeners later and as well now that all those resources and those links that diane was so kind to share will be on her show notes page at carsyat.com all right we are up to a very introspective question here diane i love this question now if you were a car and i'll add motorcycle because again i know you love to ride what kind would you be and why 
Well, actually, in preparation for this show, this is the question I considered the longest. Oh, okay. <laughs> because I wanted to make sure I got the personality right. Yeah. Um, I've had a lot of Volkswagens in my ownership of cars. We've collected Volkswagens. We collect microcars, which are adorable and uh, meaningful and have had you know great value in the marketplace. Same thing with vintage motorcycles. But I thought about the whole world outside of my familiarity. And the cars that I am attracted to the most are what I think I am like the most. So I narrowed that world down to two and I picked one. Cool. Okay. What is it? I'll tell you what I picked and then I'll tell you what was second. All right. I picked a 1955 Studebaker President. Whoa is what car I would be. I was born in 1953, and it's a coincidence about 1955. But I think the first time I saw that at a car show, and I have a couple of friends who who now own them as part of their collections, you know, the Pierce Arrows are gorgeous, the, all of the Brass Arrow, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. But I look at them, and then I gravitate to the Studebakers, but among the Studebakers, this one in particular. Bert and I are members of the Studebaker Club, but we don't have a Studebaker. We just love we just love it. We're members of the Nomad Club and we don't have a Nomad. We just <laughs> love those too. Yeah. And that actually was the second car, 1957 Nomad. Cool. So and they're totally different. But the thing that I think about the 1955 Studebaker president is that it's quietly elegant and it drives well and is efficient and effective. And that's how I think of myself. Perfect, perfect. I love the thought you put into that. Thank you very much. Great answer. (laughs) You're the first one of those on the show, by the way, too. So you're very unique, of course. Uh, I think that's great. You answered that really, really well. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. I love the question. (laughs) So Diane, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's car. Yeah, sponsors. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people, but what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. Okay, Diane, we are back and we're entering the last lap, and I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So you ready? Yes, I am. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? The automotive advice that I've received that has dramatically changed my drive ability is look ahead in the curve. And you can't not do that and ride a motorcycle at the same time. And you can't not do that and drive a car well at the same time. So the best automotive advice had to do with driving, which comes in very handy for someone like me because we spend most of our car and motorcycle enthusiasm touring. So driving becomes an important aspect of it. You know, absolutely. When I uh, went to get my racing license, uh, I can't tell you how many times in my ear and the same with my motorcycle driver's course, heads up, heads up, look down into the corner 
So many people just look right in front of them and they don't look way ahead. And especially important, of course, as you know, with motorcycle riding, heads up and look way ahead into that corner. Very good. Now, how about a personal habit? Is there one that stands out for you that has contributed to your success? I think yes. And I think it sums up into organizational skills. I think that I'm successful because I am naturally inclined to be organized. And I think I became aware of that when I was, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth grade, and we were volunteering, our family typically volunteered, and we were juggling, and we were also athletic, you know, after school sports and stuff like that. And we were juggling a bunch of things, and it it seemed more soulfully satisfying to do all of those things and be organized in a way that I could succeed at all of those things. Right. And it's proven itself over and over again. And people have come to me over the years as a consultant to help them get and stay organized. And so I feel lucky that I'm naturally inclined that way. And I'm also a hard worker. I don't mind spending time to get organized because I see the benefit, the dramatic benefit to it in everything that I do personally and, and professionally. Oh, absolutely. Now, I know there's lots of great resources out there, but is there one in particular you think that the Cars Yow listeners would really enjoy? The resources that I would like them to enjoy is a resource, and that is I. I would like them to enjoy me as a resource because I think I am, uh, because of the role that I'm playing and inserting myself in the uh, momentum of this movement, I think I become a resource. So I'm relying not only on funding, but also uh, connect, you know, the network, building the network. So this is an opportunity for me to have a shout out to all of the people who are not yet in my network as a way to get more information about the constituencies that we deal with and work with at the Haggerty Education Program and to start engaging with us. Absolutely. So I'm I'm the resource. (laughs) You are the resource. Absolutely. Excellent. Great resource, I might add. Now, how about a book? I know there's a lot of great books out there, but is there one in particular you think our listeners would enjoy cracking open and reading? You know, this book is theme related. It's directly related to the work that I'm doing right now, but it's a great book. And I was so glad in our pre-interview interview to hear that you had read this as well. Yep. This is Matthew Crawford's book uh, from 19, published first published in 2009 called Shop Class as Soul Craft. And it's a, um, a book filled with great information. I love his philosophy and his point of view on things. And it's an aha moment kind of book. Um, so I think that the readers, if they haven't already read it, might enjoy reading it. And if they have read it, you might want to read it again in the context of now knowing what we're doing with the Haggerty Education Program. Absolutely. It's a wonderful book. In fact, when it came out, I bought copies for a lot of friends of mine because I thought it was so great and for my children to read. Uh, I thought it was a great book. So I'm glad you recommended that and brought that up. And I'll remind our listeners, you can find links to all these great resources. You can become one of those uh, people that reach out to Diane and help her at carsyad.com on her very own show notes page. Just type Diane, D-I-A-N-1-N-E in the search bar and her show notes page will pop up with all those great links and resources so you can reach out to her. All right, we're up to the checkered flag. And this last question can be a real doozy. If you could have only one collector car, and I'll include collector motorcycle, as I've been adding throughout our talk here today, because I know you're a a woman that loves to get on a motorcycle, but you can't sell it to buy a bunch of other stuff with, but 
money's no object. I'll buy you whatever you'd like today. Whatever vehicle exists in the world, what would that one vehicle be? And more importantly, why? I would return the favor to Bert from when in 1997 he bought me the um, Ducati Monster. Uh-huh. And so my purchase, uh, which is a little bit of a fantasy purchase because I'm not sure we're actually going to do it, but this is my motivation in answering as I will. I would have in my garage a 1949 MGTC in British Racing Green, and I would have it because that is a favorite of Burt's. We've owned one for a short period of time um, and enjoyed it. it. We bought it in boxes. He restored it at, with Brad Green, our, quote, son in Seattle. And we don't have it anymore. And this is not back to the what What do you long to have. It was the right time to get rid of it because we bought three microcars in its place. So so our thing is about space <laughs> as opposed to cost because we live in the city. Oh, yeah. But I would buy that 1949 MGTC as a thank you and a nod to Bert symbolically for the generosity of his gift in 1997. Oh, a nice way to answer that. Absolutely fantastic. You know, MGTC, that has a special place in my heart. My listeners will know that my father had one when I was a little boy, five, six years old. I remember that car distinctly, right-hand drive, uh, riding in that car with my dad and my mom. My sister and I would sit in that little luggage compartment behind them with (laughs) our goggles on so bugs didn't get in our eyes. And, uh, yeah, spectacular cars. I've always kind of thought I'd love to have one someday and uh, bring back They're a those. great little car. Great little car, yeah. There's some nice ones up here in the Pacific North Northwest. And uh, uh, years ago, I got to uh, spend a day with one with a gentleman who lives out on Vashon Island. He restores oh, yeah. them. And he also lives in Arizona. And um, he took me for a ride in one. So it brought back a lot of great memories. Great. 49 TC. I love it. Diane, you have taken me on an awesome ride today. I've really enjoyed your stories. Thanks so much. You're welcome. And I want to thank you for sharing your journey with the Cars Yeah listeners and with me. Could you offer us one parting piece of guidance before you and Bert drive off into the sunset in that 49 TC? (laughs) With small luggage, because that luggage compartment is really tiny. It's really (laughs) tiny, yeah. Effective packing required. Pack like you're on a motorcycle. Well, I'm going to come full circle with two thoughts. I'm going to repeat Mr. Heaney's philosophy, the philosophy of if you're going to complain about something, really think hard about coming to the table with a solution for that complaint and make all of your ideas um, doable. Anything that you think as an idea, what is implementable? Um, I would have to say that's a great philosophy to live by. And my second parting thought would have to do with the Haggerty Education Program and the momentum that we're creating relative to hands-on education. And if there's anyone out there who would like to learn more or be part of it or both, I would love to tell you more because this is um, not the beginning, but it's certainly momentum is speeding up. And we want everyone to fasten their seatbelt and be part of our story, too. Absolutely. And again, the best ways for people to go and learn more about what you're doing? Well, people can reach out to me individually, but we also have information on our website, which is www.haggertyeducationprogram.com. My email for more specific information, if you're not finding it on the website, is diane at hepacm.org. Uh, and my cell phone number is 312-543-5732. Excellent. Well, again, listeners, you can find all of this information on Diane's very own show notes page at com. 
Again, just type Diane in the search bar and that page will pop up with links. I'd encourage you to investigate what Diane is up to, what the museum and Haggard are up to here. Very, very worthwhile causes. It's a way to keep the car hobby going. It's a way to offer opportunities for our young people and our middle-aged and old people, too, if they want to get involved, of course, uh, in the car hobby that we all enjoy so much. Diane, thank you so much for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your stories with the listeners and with me. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Well, thank you, Mark, so much. I totally enjoyed it and appreciated the opportunity to tell you and your listeners about me and Bert and what we're doing and LeMay America's Car Museum, which is just fantastic. And congratulations on having such a fantastic show and having things come to life for those of us who are car and motorcycle enthusiasts. It's a great, great show. Thank you. You're welcome. The pleasure's been all mine. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.